So I'm here at Health 2023 in Las Vegas and I'm joined by over 10,000 attendees and 350 something speakers and 850 something sponsors, all convening here at the Las Vegas Convention Center. And this event brings together all the different stakeholders, senior executives and decision makers and innovators to help them accelerate business outcomes, stay ahead of emerging trends, connect with industry, advance their career, or all of the above. And I was lucky enough to speak to a lot of different innovators and thought leaders here at the event over three days. And I'm bringing those conversations to you in this podcast episode today. This is part two of a two-part series. So if you missed episode one, go back and check that out on your favorite podcast player or over on YouTube. So right now, here are some more conversations that I had at Health 2023 in Las Vegas. Collaboration starts with a conversation team, Health Tech. Well, let's make it happen. Welcome to Talking Health Tech featuring content and community about technology and healthcare. We acknowledge the traditional owners of lands these conversations were recorded and pay respect to elders past and present. I'm Jenna Carl. I'm a clinical psychologist and a researcher, and I work at Big Health as Chief Medical Officer. Excellent. Thanks for stopping by the podcast booth here at Health. Um, tell us a bit about the work you do at Big Health. Yeah, absolutely. So Big Health is a digital therapeutics maker, which is trying to create uh, non-drug options for common mental health conditions like insomnia, anxiety, and depression. And uh, we're in the business of getting people access to those treatments, which are uh, unfortunately hard to access otherwise. Important issue, I think, in a in the current climate of a lot of issues, uh, particularly around those those points around insomnia and other aspects, a first point of call for a lot of people would be medication to drugs. And that's not a sustainable solution. <laughs> and so digital therapeutics, though, for those unfamiliar with what that is, what is a digital therapeutic? Yeah, it's a great question. So a digital therapeutic is specifically software-based medicine, which is uh, regulated as a medical device in the U.S. and in most other countries around the world, meaning it is under a greater degree of regulation and has higher standards for quality, safety, and efficacy. So it's very much like other classes of traditional medicine, like medications um, or medical devices that you, you'd, you know, you'd require uh, rigorous clinical trials to show safety and efficacy uh, prior to marketing. You'd also require high levels of quality manufacturing practices in software that really is uh, quality systems for the product development, um, as well as like really rigorous cybersecurity protocols. So those are things that are not required in consumer wellness apps, but are required as part of it being a digital therapeutic where you really are delivering a treatment clinical grade level intervention. Mm. So that that's really um, what's necessary when you're talking about like proper medicine. It's interesting when you think about it on a spectrum of from a consumer's point of view, they've got everywhere from you know, your consumer apps that have cool filters that make you look like dogs and stuff. And then right up to, you know, your comprehensive medical devices that are, that have an interface on them and perhaps something that you might use, but it, it feels like a clinical grade bit of kit. And you've got digital therapeutics, which you download on your consumer phone, but they're, they're pushing up into this point, like you said, around the regulatory side. And because you put really important information into these things and it's providing feedback to you. That's also really important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're talking about patient health data, and it's actually one of the biggest concerns that patients have, as well as providers, is, is you know, are pe is people's data safe? Mm. And 
it really like it's hard for in the current environment for people to even know what to look for to assess that. Um, so I do actually like a lot of kind of helping people understand like like what to look for to to under to know that it is a digital therapeutic level intervention that therefore has the degree of robust kind of uh, like HIPAA, high trust and other yeah. security uh, measures to keep people's data safe. So that's like, you know, one one thing that differentiates. Uh, but you, to your point, it's like it's uh, I think that the patient experience is just as important in a digital, digital therapeutic as it is in a consumer wellness app. And I think it's it's that's like some that's work that's still happening today, I think, to try to ensure that just because something is delivering a clinical clinical grade intervention doesn't mean it needs to be sterile in terms of this look and feel. Yeah. So that's something we work on a lot at Big Health, like in our in our digital therapeutics is is providing a great patient experience that has, you know, is as smooth as using a consumer app, yeah. but is still delivering a clinical grade treatment. Do you find so from a patient's point of view, you know, typically a patient might go to a doctor because the usual pathway has been, I need to go to the doctor to get a piece of paper to say I can have a medication because I wouldn't have otherwise been able to get this medication, have it prescribed to me. But if I'm, if the doctor just tells me to download an app that looks cool, I could have just downloaded an app. Now I'm fully aware of like, you know, the, the, that thing, but that cultural piece, I think is there's there's one aspect there in terms of the the efficacy and everything that that we we can talk about and, and and I've seen some great data in relation to that but there's the adoption piece as well and it's not just the trust side it's the well the, if this looks so cool and it's sleek is this um this is not what I'm used to and and that might buck some people does that does that kind of resonate with you is that a challenge or is that just something that I'm probably overthinking about I think that it's less of a challenge than it seems and I guess even from experience so we were yeah. uh in the UK with the NHS where we provide um both sleep or therapeutic for insomnia and day later therapeutic for generalized anxiety disorder through providers and both the providers and patients are incredibly satisfied to have non-drug options. Yeah. Where, like, it turns out, people think that, I think there's a myth that patients want quick fixes, aka medications. Mm. Like, that's not what the research bears out. People don't want side effects. They know that they're not actually getting a cure, right? They have to continue to take the medication. There's a ton of, like, unfortunate downstream consequences, drug-drug interactions, like, you know, the consequences of some of the side effects, like weight gain or, like, rogginess which yeah. is serious and so i think that it's for digital therapeutics it's not like just rolling out another a new medication mm -mm. He, it is solving like a real gap and therefore we, i think we've actually found that patients are very happy to have their doctors refer they wouldn't have known which apps to pick right if they were to like they go to the app store and they you know it's hard it's so hard to differentiate so when you have a doctor say this is a legitimate treatment for sleep yep. it's what you need it's going to get you better i'll be here to support you if you need it but like you can you can do this on your own largely they're very happy yeah so i think it's like that's the integration that you really want to get good adoption you really yeah you want I love the, that yeah and you mentioned sleep there as an example what does a digital therapeutic look like for for assisting someone with insomnia, insomnia or sleep issues so for insomnia and for most mental health disorders there are evidence-based behavioral and cognitive treatments that have been like well proven out to help address the root causes of those conditions and get people better. And so for insomnia, it's what's typically called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, super creative, CBT, <laughs> CBTI. <laughs> yeah. And it's 
And ultimately, it's addressing a, uh, several different mechanisms of action um, or has seven different mechanisms of action that are addressing kind of the root cause of insomnia. And so those include things like circadian uh, rhythm uh, difficulties or uh, uh, disruptions like, you know, which like that could be an example could be like if someone's jet lag, the disruption to their sleep was largely from shifting the circadian rhythm. Mm. But there's all kinds of other examples where that can get shifted. I try to look forward to that in a few days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, we can, Sleepio can help you with that. Okay. It's not, uh, but it's also for, there's also more anxious um, and other like uh, physiological processes that can underlie insomnia. And so the program essentially addresses the, the set of different causes um, and maintaining factors of insomnia. And it's all through like cognitive and behavioral changes that, that we'd support you to make. It's personalized. Uh, so, you know, such you begin the program with an assessment of your sleep, which helps us know uh, what areas to focus on, uh, which helps us set like a personalized treatment program for you. And then going through it, like a core part of it is, of course, like tracking your sleep from night to night. And then based on that, we're able to guide through the specific be behavioral changes and then do a lot of work around the anxious thinking patterns that are also generally happening for people who are having sleep problems. I think just by you explaining through some of those um, those elements of uh, the treatment that be received through the digital therapeutic, um, that's not stuff you get from a medication. It's it's things that you might get from a from a consultation. But I guess in terms of the scale of the problems that are being solved, I imagine by doing it through a, a a smart firmification or a digital therapeutic, that's probably a lot more achievable to access a larger population than just trying to get more clinicians to do it. Am I right? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. So there are something like a few hundred clinicians in the U.S. that are actually trained to like the highest level of standard around behavioral sleep behavioral medicine, which includes that treatment that I described to you. So we're talking, the issue is there's there's many, many therapists uh, and who can provide great different types of general therapy, most of them do not provide the specific treatment for insomnia. Mm. So if someone shows up in a therapist's office, which, I mean, I, I had this actually ex experience when I was a kid. Uh, I'm sure many, many people have. Insomnia is so common. And a therapist says, like, well, let's, let's talk about it. It's, like, incredibly frustrating because <laughs> that's not the treatment for insomnia. And so it is, so ultimately, it's, it's not going to be best solved through increasing clinicians. It's, it's not really the kind of thing you want to spend a lot of time talking about it's very specific behavioral adjustments it's mm. like well based on your schedule you should be going to sleep at this time here's what you're going to do when you wake up at night instead of what you did before mm. um here's how we're going to adjust your schedule over time to get your sleep more consolidated yes and so it's again it's not really um a, it's not a talking type of solution though you know obviously great trained providers can do that in person with someone but you know as a clinician myself what i would rather do is uh do the other things in live in a session that are more about the relationship and the emotional support, the motivation, and really let a patient use the specific digital tool to be providing like in the moment techniques and support mm. and, you know, and the, the structured scheduling, et cetera, like which is which just lends itself better to a digital format. You're going to be up on a stage at some point today. Is that right? Tell us about what's going on there. Yeah, we're going to uh, it's called Pillow Talk. We're going to be talking about sleep. Uh, and the importance of sleep to broader health and mental health. And uh, we've got a great set of panelists uh, from the research side as to several uh, different companies providing different types of sleep services and intervention. And I'm, yeah, I'm really excited about it. I think it's, it's, a, it's an interesting time in, I think, our cultural history where 
I feel like for the first time, people are starting to understand the importance of sleep and prioritize it. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, at, at least in the U.S. and probably, um, you know, most of the developed parts of the world, we have tended to have a culture of like productivity is all that matters and like sleep when you die mm-hmm. not prioritizing it. And and it's with the with the knowledge we have now, it's very clear that that is poor thinking and that, you know, creativity um, and advancement uh, even just avoiding, you know, really fatal, terrible mistakes um, in, you know, in certain types of uh, jobs where like, sure. it is like, it all depends on getting good sleep. We, everyone sleeps and most people sleep about a third of their lives. And so mm. spending more time prioritizing and focusing on it is, is incredibly crucial. And so I think that now's the time to do that. And we're trying to really like mobilize, um, you know, energy around that. There's a level of irony of having that message here in Las Vegas during a <laughs> conference. But, and I'm thinking that's probably one of the key takeaways I'm going to take from health is the, the importance of more sleep to be um, more switched on. However, from your perspective, what are some of the key takeaways that you might take from this event? Um, and also then, uh, alternatively, people who might be watching your session or just attending the event generally think that like some of those key messages or takeaways you'd hope that people would would take away and implement in their different health settings or, or um, uh, environments? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so I think number one is that uh, sleep and mental health are incredibly important. And there is not going to be just one solution that we're that we can have that's going to address the gaps that exist today. Yeah. And so I think today we're dealing with broad access gaps for any kind of mental health practitioners. And so there's companies that are trying to solve that, which is incredibly important. Um, but we're also dealing with significant gaps for people getting access to the specific treatments that they need. And instead, they're just getting medication, uh, which generally are second line, higher risk. Providers and patients do not do not want that to be the case. It's really just the only accessible option. So for me, the takeaway is for, you know, for anyone um, who's able to to really think about what's the full set of solutions that are going to be needed to provide patients both general support and therapy, mm-hmm. as well as the specific treatments for common conditions like insomnia, anxiety, and depression, uh, and and just and just getting very clear about how to knit together, you know, a system that's actually going to get patients what they need. Hi, my name is Lisa Shaw. I'm the chief medical officer for Twin Health, and I am from Washington D.C. Excellent, thank you. And tell me a little bit more about Twin Health and what you guys do. Well, Twin Health is a chronic metabolic disease reversal company. We are very unique in that we use first of its kind digital twin technology to build a whole body digital twin of human metabolism. Using that whole body digital twin, we are able to help people reverse chronic metabolic disease and get off of medications. And we're talking about diseases like type two diabetes, obesity, prediabetes, hypertension, and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Digital twin technology, that's a really cool space and emerging or at least a lot of interest around it my layman's interpretation of it is basically like a sandbox version of a human that allows to kind of then determine what's going on or at least understand so you're not actually mucking around with the real human you've got the kind of 
comparable side one. Tell me a bit more about, help me understand a little bit more around the digital twin technology side. Yeah, close, but maybe a little different. Um, so what we're able to do is, I think about it, it's been used in a lot of industries. So airlines, mm. uh, autonomous driving, right? So using sensor technology, we can study cause and effect. So okay. imagine if you put wearable sensors on a human and you can collect thousands of data points a day about things they're doing and what's happening in their body, right? Mm -hmm. Just from these sensors, we can actually look through the digital twin at cause and effect. So see how a different food or a stress level or sleep uh, or your heart rate or you walk around a convention center, how, what does that do to the outputs that we're seeing, right? So blood glucose hypertension, blood pressure, your heart rate, your respiratory rate. And using all of that, we're able to see how humans precisely react to certain things in their environment, certain things they do in their day-to-day -day lifestyle. Yes, and I guess in this current environment, we're increasing chronic disease and a lot of those, the healthcare conditions we have often impacted by environment, right? So I guess if, it's, I guess if we could get a little bit in front of it, that must be a good thing. Yeah, it's a great thing. And if you think about it today, diseases like diabetes and obesity, we're treating them mostly with medications, right? Yeah. Uh, so we go to the doctor, doctor says, eat better, sleep better, exercise more. Pretty generic, really hard to do, hard to sustain, right? Yeah. Uh, and then they give you more meds. And every time you go to the doctor, maybe your hemoglobin A1C, if your diabetes gets a little better, yeah. you take the medication and then it gets a little worse, you get more medication. What yeah. we're really able to do is say, we know specifically what is uh, impacting your type 2 diabetes so that we can heal your metabolism internally. Yes. So what I mean by that is, as you're going through your day, we can tell our patients the top three things they need to do to help control their metabolism. For example, for some people, it's not just all carbs. White rice maybe mm. impacts them more than bread. Wouldn't it be nice to know? For some people, walking in the morning is more impactful than walking in the evening. For some people, they could eat the same exact meal for lunch three days in a, in a row, but if they got less than five and a half hours of sleep the night before, their blood sugar is 20 points higher the next yeah. day. You know, in healthcare, we're very good at treating an issue once it's happened, and it's a little bit harder to quantify the value that's being delivered by preventing something from happening in the first place, because then if it didn't happen, it's like, well, why did we do it? Like we got nothing to demonstrate that it happened. But then it's like, that's the whole point of doing it in the first place is preventing something happening. So I guess having some of these measures and being able to add some science and quantification around it's then helpful, not just from a convincing clinicians to be able to, you know, see the value in using it, but also I guess from a funding and getting it, you know, the, the structure within the, the ecosystem as well to, to buy into hopefully gearing healthcare a little bit more towards the prevention side as opposed to just treating disease when it happens. Yeah, exactly. I mean, think about all the things you can prevent progression of disease. You can prevent yeah. new diseases from coming that are all related to things like insulin resistance or fat deposition in your yeah. body. So if you can solve all of those problems for people, there's loads of things that you're actually preventing in the future for happening to them. Our entire model is that if we can get you off of medicine, return your body to normal clinical values and reverse that chronic disease in the first place, it doesn't mean you're not at risk for it again, but, but being able to take that away has, has significant impact. I'd say the other thing that's really nice about and AI in general, artificial intelligence in general, and these wearable sensors is it's really giving people the power of the data, right? Yes. The knowledge, patients, being able to know exactly what's happening to their blood sugar, what's happening to their blood pressure, their weight, uh, what, what are the different things in their lives that are impacting it so they can have accountability and responsibility for the changes they make as well. Yes. And we spoke a bit about then just about the objective outcomes from a, from a patient's point of view, but I imagine too there are 
financial outcomes that are favorable by doing this kind of stuff too. Is some of that measurable that you can speak about as well? Yes, because we've been able to reverse type 2 diabetes, meaning we've been able to take uh, A1C down to normal clinical values and remove medications, expensive costly medications in 72% of our population. We've been able to eliminate 71% of high cost diabetes meds. And that's really important because these medications can cost upwards of $12,000 a year, some yeah. of them higher. And by pulling that cost out of the system, we're able to save uh, employers and uh, health plans a significant amount of money annually for these patients. Mariam, how are you? I'm good, thank you. How good. Good. Long time to speak. I feel like we could just chat and because uh, <laughs> it's it's been a while and we know yeah. each other well. But, and we've caught up at health. So it's, it's great to yeah, see you today. I'm so glad to be here and also to see you. Yes. Excellent. For those that don't know, could you please introduce yourself and tell us who you are and where you're from? Sure. Uh, my name is Mariam. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Medoptima. Uh, Medoptima is in the business of saving lives. Uh, we are a digital health company focused on dermatology from Vancouver, Canada. We have our business and operations in Australia and also in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And uh, we are providing AI-powered smart platform for dermatology, um, helping um, everyone in the patient journey, including patients themselves, um, uh, primary care providers and specialists for better care coordination, better quality diagnostics and saving lives and saving costs. Excellent. Thank you. That sounds very familiar to me. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> Such a surprise. <laughs> no, you know what is interesting? As you said that, uh, two things I noted that um, speaking very much about dermatology in a broader sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and also I, I recall from back in 2018, 2019, you were back on the podcast in the early, early days. We spoke about the role of artificial intelligence in this space and yep. being that intelligent assistant. Yeah. Uh, and, and AI has always been of interest, but in the last six, 12 months, uh, it's probably less than now. that. It's, it's exploded. Yeah. So in, in that in that situation, what's that been like for the organization? How's that Has that changed anything or, or reaffirmed some positions with the organization? What's what's the, 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 um, the, the vibe now? You know, from the beginning, I think our DNA was like, um, you know, AI and as two co-founders, computer scientists training in a specialty dermatology and um, basically computing science and machine learning. Uh, when we started, it wasn't that uh, hot, I would say. And as one of the companies leading this, I believe, in, uh, in our domain at least, um, bringing AI to real-life clinical applications, um, it was tough because, like, you won't believe, like, the challenges we had when we started. It was like, oh, can I host my data on the cloud? It's like, is it safe? And that's like, today is like everywhere. Like, mm. we are not questioning if my patient data should be on the cloud or not, right? Like, imagine the challenges you have building an AI-based company when there's no even digitization. So, <laughs> but um, those days are past now. I think now what we see um, in terms of the market and um, I used to talk about the power of AI technology, you know, potential for AI to contribute to better care and all of that. And honestly, recently I've been talking about the challenges and overestimating AI and how you implement it for clinical success and uh, how you minimize the risk and how you even analyze your risk. Mm. There are not really, not really many best practices developed. Like there are no guidelines to say how this should be implemented. Like AI for me and for you and for the other doctor will be totally different based on our settings, our patients, our specialty. Mm. There's like so many biases we need to address in that setting and all of that. But it's just really... Um, challenging and also super, super exciting when you're leading 
these type of implementations, right? There's a yeah. lot we are learning every day. Um, I can tell you, uh, to the best of my knowledge, we have the biggest database of um, quality labeled images in dermatology of uh, close to 11 million. Wow. Right? Um, over 3 million patient profiles in our platform, serving over 5,000 medical professionals in more than 26, 2700 medical locations today. Mm. So we have this global knowledge about this practice, um, practice of implementing AI for clinical success, not just engineering success, right? Uh, when it comes to evaluating AI, um, most cases, it's a nice big number on the table, like in, uh, in the table in your publications. Yes. If you have evaluation, if you have um, clinical studies, all of that, but that's not real life. Real life is like, okay, what is this doing today in the hands of doctors and how do you know this is working for them? So. Mm. Uh, I'm really excited to see how we are contributing to this implementation science. Yes. Right? It's, it's one of those basic sciences, really. We saw this as like application, and then it's like, no, there's no application. It's still science. Like, you mm. need to develop the basics of the science and say what's important, how you implement it, what you measure, how you analyze the risk, how you mitigate the risk, and all of that. So yeah. anyway, for us today, um, it's really exciting to see that we are at some of the top centers of excellence globally, um, working with these pioneers in this field, like saying, like today I had a really good chat with one of the top university hospitals coming to us and saying that we need this for our community. You know how many patients we have, the wait time we have for plastic surgery and for melanoma and for uh, other types of skin cancer. So why we don't have it already? It's mm. like. Uh, like, yeah, I know, but yeah. this is also important how you implement it, uh, how you don't jump ahead of yourself. It's really, really easy when it comes to marketing AI to just say things that looks hot and exciting, yeah. right? But really, when it comes to implementation, you need to take all those steps to make sure it's the best practice. Yeah, and uh, absolutely. You mentioned a few times that the fact there's a global approach to things as well. And I imagine this space where you know, to, to you know, here in Australia, images of skin cancer, that's great, but we've got a pretty standard demographic yeah. of people that, yeah. that are here. That's not going to be helpful for yeah. the other side of the world. Absolutely. So getting that kind of scale is that, um, you know, people might think, well, there's the big tech companies that have access to just, you know, mountains and mountains of data for, from being, you know, the startup through to the scale up that MetaOptima is. How do you go about building out such a, a robust kind of data set of uh, images or, or information to be able to reliably provide this information at a global scale? That's a really good point. I think for, um, I say, fair access to technology, in this case, fair access to AI, we need to um, provide access to all patients hmm. around the globe, right? So we initiated projects to um, even donate our platform to the centers in Africa. Um, we want to make sure we have diversity, we have inclusion in the core of our company culture and building around that. So if you don't digitize um, data for these type of patients, then they won't have access to technology because there was no data to train the system to serve them. So that's one of the things really, really important. Uh, in our case, uh, we have created this community project. Um, actually, I learned one of our employees told me it was the best project she worked in her life. There you go. Uh, yeah. So just offering the solution to cancer centers, dermatology groups, and um, I mean, whoever is serving these patients, mm. um, skin of color specifically is a focus for us. Um, just because like when you look at the um, 
normal distribution of technology. Yes. Those patients who need it the most have the least access, right? So mm-hmm. we need to change that, which is a big thing. You know, as a small company, you don't have all the things you need to be successful, but at least we are trying our best. But I think it's really important to say, I have analyzed risk and I have taken steps. I have been taking steps to make sure I'm addressing that risk and I'm moving forward, making progress. Mm-hmm. In our case, we don't claim we have a skin cancer diagnostic AI for skin type 5, 6. Yeah. Right? This is really important to say, I cannot do this just because I don't have data. But I have taken the step. Mm. I'm bringing data and I'm addressing that. So I have done my part to provide yes. fair access to care for all patients. So um, that's one of the things. Uh, in terms of your question, when it comes to big companies versus smaller companies, um, I think... <laughs> In, a, in our case, we win by focusing on what we are really, really good at, and we only do that. Yes. We are in the medical practice. We have taken everything we could to make sure we are compliant, right? We do best, and we are really good at what we do. So there are partnership opportunities. It's not like all big companies make and build everything from scratch. Mm-hmm. They find good companies. They want to be... Um, basically part of that future. Um, this, I mean, like smaller companies want to be yeah. part of that bigger future. So they're also open for partnerships. In our case, um, we've been talking to many of these big players. Yeah. And I think um, we are part of the future. We are building yeah. it. Uh, I don't Amazing. say like we have um, really like figured out everything, but I know we are good at knowing what we know and what we don't know. And to your point as well, I, what, what I do like is that the, the solid foundation in that medical rigor and the, and the research side of things and, and the trust in the data, you know, when in doubt, you know, building these really robust kind of foundations, because uh, if you're trying to build trust and credibility within the healthcare ecosystem, yeah. doing things that really impact people's lives, you've got to build from that foundation with that yeah. peer-reviewed journals and things exactly. like that. Exactly. So yeah. It's really important. And it's really difficult to gain trust as first movers, right? But we've done it. And I think in our case, um, our partners, our clients know that they are in good hands in terms of privacy, in terms of patient rights, in terms of term abuse, in terms of so many other aspects of building your good culture, good business. Um, So yeah, I think that's also really important. And lastly, what, what's exciting you about the future then, Mariam? What's, what can we look forward to seeing from Meta Optima in the next 6 to 24? Actually, several things happening. I'm really excited about our um, new um, engine, their engine AI engine. So it's not just app or just yeah. one algorithm. We have over 30 algorithms on our current platform. Yeah. You know that. But actually, we are building this like um, engine that our enterprise partners and clients can program Mm. right to use AI it means it's not one app that actually you will have and your colleague and everyone will have yeah, it's, cool. it's going to be the engine that you say what's your input data it can be totally different than my data and we have the engine that you can say what should be your output data so for example you can say I want to separate um, high risk patients for um, dermatitis or psoriasis general dermatogenous just skin cancer and even in skin cancer you can say I want my basal cell carcinoma, non-melanoma skin cancers to go through this pathway for care coordination. Mm. Yeah. I want my melanoma patients to be referred to their dermato-oncology unit or whatever is that risk that you are taking in your care coordination, it's your choice. It's not one threshold that says, oh, it's cancer. It's not yes. cancer. 
This is saying that I'm going to use it as my backend engine for my care coordination, for my resource assessment, um, uh, management assignment, and also for minimizing risk. Like you can identify today how many live melanomas you have in your patients in the system, how many you've missed, how many you've underdiagnosed, and that's actually, I think, really powerful. Cool. So, yeah, that's a new engine we built. It's now in um, three countries. Wow. Under pilot. So major health systems trying that. And um, the other thing is that we are introducing our um, virtual reality-powered dermatology, which That's is going to be very, very cool. Yeah, I know it's new to you, too. <laughs> yes. So basically, it's all about revolutionizing dermatology. You know how labor-intensive it is, right? Sure. Like with, when it comes to exams, documenting and I spend maybe 25 to 45 minutes for my patient, and I'm only if ever taking few photos yeah. and maybe just lighting a couple of sentences in my patient, you know, patient records, and I hate my EMR and, you know, I love the feedback <laughs> the we things, have from yeah. our doctors yeah. um, because it's just time-consuming. But mm. the, the idea was how we transition this and how we have um, an efficient model that's actually um, documenting the whole exam um, creating a different experience, our doctors remotely could mm. navigate the patient exam, do it whatever they want, right? And that's actually, and now it's powered by AI. It can summarize um, the full exam, and also it has our visual, um, <laughs> yeah, they're mentioned AI. Wow, so <laughs> there you go. That's really, really cool. And you know, our Derm Drone project, right? Yeah, so it's actually, uh, it's a study oh. from that. So we had built that, that model where we are working on the patient's you know, indoor navigation and yeah. safety and all of those. But actually, when we had this new addition, it's using our 3D body modeling algorithms. It's using our uh, oh, basic patient exam and navigation algorithms. So anyway, it's going to be really, really um, innovative in terms of the advancements in dermatology. And it's not just dermatology. I think it has many more other applications, but our focus is on dermatology. So, Peter, great to be with you. I'm Aaron Ganny, the founder and CEO of Behavior uh, from Louisville, Kentucky. Amazing. And tell me a little bit more about Behavior. And there's like a viewer at the end of it, right? Yeah, we go with Behavior or Behavior. Yes. So what we You'll do, both, yeah. that's right, we answer to both. We have a pipeline of digital therapeutics, all focused on mental and behavioral health. So a range from chronic pain to anxiety, depression, opioid use disorder, and even agoraphobic avoidance in serious mental illness patients. Mm -hmm. We use the medium of virtual reality because it is very neurologically powerful and differentiated and superior, candidly, when you use it for certain things, particularly when you're addressing things related to fear and pain. So for fear, think exposure therapy, putting you yep. in the presence of the thing that is a threat for you, whether that's you're socially anxious or you're afraid to go out of your house, like agoraphobic avoidance, a much more severe form or OCD or panic disorder or something like that triggers you and is, you know, fires that sort of emotional and physiological response that puts you into fight or flight mode, we can use the ability of this multi-sensory simulation in VR to trip your animal brain, sort of your primitive brain, your limbic system into believing basically this is my new reality. That is really useful for working through your ability to cope with and challenge your own assumptions about that. So that's half, exposure therapy. The flip side of that is, we can put you in amazing, calming, soothing environments and quickly get you into a calm state, specifically like parasympathetic nervous system dominance. 
That's the fear side of the equation. On the pain side, lots and lots of evidence over more than a decade of the power of the medium to relieve acute pain in the moment. So think really distract you from pain. And we use it for chronic pain through pain neuroscience education, calming and mindfulness, and then critically graded exercise and gamified movement. So that's why we work in the medium of VR on that specific set of conditions. Yeah. Got you, nice one. And I like the bringing together of speaking about digital therapeutics through the medium of VR, because I, I naively, for some reason, I, or, or just from repetition perhaps, I think of digital therapeutics, I think of a smartphone app, but yeah. there's, there's obviously many mediums that those digital therapeutics can deliver. And I guess that's reassuring and necessary from, from a clinical point of view to give the rigor around digital therapeutics for the, for the modality of virtual reality, to give that credibility because we're dealing with clinical interventions, right? Yeah, I mean, there's you can be forgiven for sort of assuming when you hear digital therapeutics, you think, oh, it's probably an app on a smartphone. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. They're ubiquitous. Most people have them. Uh, we work in VR because of the reasons I stated, but I think even more interesting is it's really not about one medium. Like people sometimes say to me, oh, you have a VR company. And I'll say, no. I'd be like if I said I had a smartphone app company. Like, what does that mean? Nothing, right? Yeah. So we're a digital therapeutics company. We work in VR. We do some things on a smartphone. We do some things with wearables, with sensors. So the objective here is to use the digital tools and capabilities of today, mm. the latest being, hey, what can we do with generative AI? Let's use all these digital modalities and tools in a way that is evidence-based, clinically proven to be safe and effective. And that digital solution, whatever combination of tools and modalities is, it has some properties humans don't. Yeah. They scale exponentially really without limits and marginal costs just go down, down, down. So we can start to close the gaps in care that we have and change the, you know, the accessibility, the scalability, and the economics of care. Yeah, you touched on that. Um, it's not just the digital modality based on efficacy, but I, I feel like more importantly, the, the, the choice of tool necessary that's used often then is determined based on how accessible it is. Like not everyone's got an Oculus Quest in the top drawer at home, you know, so yeah. uh, that's, that's, that's part of the point that's as right. well. Yeah. That's right. And in terms of then, um, you know, in this digital therapeutic space where digital therapeutics not being a new kind of area that we're playing in, I, I guess, somewhat new in the, in the grander scheme of things. But I guess we've seen a few seasons of digital therapeutics and organizations coming through and, and having success with different business models and, and not success in, in, in different business models. Where are we now in this whole kind of journey of digital therapeutics, I guess, and how it fits in with the broader kind of health system? Yeah, it is definitely a journey, right? There's, there's a lot of complexity. It's a new category of, of medicine, if you will, yeah. that are building um, applications on top of generative AI uh, foundational models uh, to help automate some of those uh, mundane activities. So um, that's an example, but also, um, I mean, there's so much literature being created uh, within science. I talked about uh, the knowledge graph. Uh, so large language model uh, approaches can also extract entities from publications. They can read and write to the graph. Uh, so it's a technology that can also help us sort through uh, and summarize uh, all the data that's being generated within science. Throughout this conversation, I've you know heard a strong kind of call for the, the collaboration piece, whether it be you know building the the team out for, for Onyx or encouraging those partnerships with those those tech providers. Sometimes, from from those perspectives, it might be 
um, you know, uh, challenging to understand whether, you know, there's an opportunity to do something with GSK or any large organization if you're on the other side. What types of organi uh, groups or people I would, would you really be keen to um, collaborate with and speak with and, and how should they get in touch? Yeah, so the, I mean, the first is understanding our priorities. Yeah. And the, the first part to start is uh, one of the, the focus areas that 